1: I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts.
0: There's a wonderful um, Kierkegaard quote that says, life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. and. That, in a way, is a guiding principle for, for this entire book. We all look back on our lives and everything looks linear, but we can't. We don't see it. It's not linear while we're experiencing it. It seems inevitable in retrospect. It seems like a jumbled, impossible mess while we're making all of these micro decisions at every moment. So that was the, the spirit or the feeling I, I tried to give while writing.
1: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Genealogy of a Murder with Lisa Belkin. Lisa is a journalist and author who has written four books. Her latest book, which we'll be talking about in depth today, Genealogy of a Murder, also Life's Work, Confessions of an Unbalanced Mom, First Do No Harm, and Show Me a Hero, which was made into an HBO miniseries of the same name and won a Golden Globe. While writing most of those books, she also was a reporter at the New York Times, particularly the New York Times Magazine, where her editors described her beat as, quote, the social conscious of our times. Her 20-year Times career includes postings as a Texas-based national correspondent, a medical reporter, and a business writer. Lisa also created both the paper's Life's Work column and Motherload blog. After the Times, she spent several years as a senior correspondent at HuffPost, where she reported and opined about life, work, and family, and then as the senior national correspondent for Yahoo News covering American social issues. Also, Lisa is the host of Life's Work with Lisa Belkin on XM Radio, as well as a regular contributor to Public Radio's The Takeaway and NBC's Today Show. Finally, a graduate of Princeton University, she returned there as a visiting professor, found out how much she loves to teach, and teaches at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Lisa, welcome to the show.
0: It is so good to be here.
1: There's so much for us to talk about. The backdrop also for our show, not only about all of us being the best versions of ourselves each day and being aware of who we are so we can make the impact we want to make on ourselves and those we care about. We also have a huge Murderino following um, on our platform. And so this is where all of our worlds collide. And I'm looking So to- I wrote you a book. You're you're welcome. Us <laughs> a book, and this is more than a book. Um, This is, I was trying to think of the word. It's, it's, um, there's several things that came to my mind. I mean, it is, it is a piece of work. It is, um, it is so much more than journalism. And I mean, it is a story about life that spans so much of our historical times in the previous and current century. I mean, there's trains, there is, um, there is the depression, there is, there are penitentiaries, there is the social context, there's World War I, there's World War II, there's so much that we're going to dive into, and of course, this overall question of nature versus nurture, and the remarkable stories of people's lives, and suffering, and turn of events. Okay, all that is to say, so that's my teaser to everyone, because first we're going to start with, Lisa, I, I'm really interested on the ro- your road first to journalism. How that came to be? Yeah,
0: I my only answer is gravitational pull. Hmm. Um, I I thought I was going to be a lawyer. My mother was a lawyer. My mother was a fairly remarkable lawyer because she became one early in early days for women. And I was still in high school, and she announced she was going to law school. Hmm. So she, being my role model, talk about parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to be a lawyer, and almost went to law school, except I spent a lot of time on my college newspaper. And so I spent a lot of summers doing college newspapering internships. And I got offered one journalism job when I was graduating and ended up sort of deferring law school and then never going to law school. The one journalism job was answering phones at the New York Times. And I sort of worked my way into a reporting job from there. But I never decided on journalism, although I'm very glad it found me because mm. it really is one of the few things I know how to do. And now I got paid for it and got to build a career out of it. Um, and it's it's mm. just I – it is a natural fit for my my curiosity in life. But I never decided to be a journalist. I just –
1: one became one, Just one step in front of the other, like opportunities to opportunities to opportunities, just one thing yeah, after and, another.
0: And some coincidences, but nothing is ever completely a coincidence in this realm. Mm-hmm. I just, it's with each choice, the the choice that attracted me the most was the one that led me more and more into this world. Um, and in the end, my mother said to me, um... Very glad you didn't become a lawyer. It would have ruined your writing. So here I was following her. And, and in fact, she had kept to herself that she didn't think that was the best choice for me, mm-hmm. trying to let me make it. And my father, interestingly, was terrified for me. He understood what a lawyer did. He understood that, you know, you get a degree and then that qualifies you for a job and then there's a track and you're right, on it. Right. He got that. Um, didn't understand really where a journalism career led. Mm-hmm. And yet he kept that to himself. And I didn't find that out until after he died. Huh. Um, so he managed to just let me let me do it, which has affected my parenting.
1: Yeah, two two different powerful um, parent footprints there on you, right? Well, first of all, your mom—you know—you going the model of going to law school. Not only at that time um, is one thing, but any time for. A, your mother to return to focus on herself right like that's a novel and very needed concept these days with the 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 mom pole and um, so much now which is written about you know the impossible job of being a mom and being a professional and so what what a step for you to see that happen
0: she was a stunning role model, and interestingly, their marriage was a a role model for me in ways I did not understand until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, after my first child was born, I was working at the New York Times. I was, you know, a, a brand new parent going back into the workforce, leaving my child every day. And I called my mother one day in tears. And, you know, my mantra had been, well, my mother worked and I turned out okay. Okay. And, and yet I didn't think things were turning out okay. And I called her sobbing one mm-hmm. day and I said, how did you do this? And she said, well, Lisa, didn't you notice your father was home?
1: Hmm.
0: My father was an orthodontist. He worked in an office adjacent to the house. So any day that I was sick, there was someone there. Anytime I needed my lunch because I forgot it, there was someone to drive it to me. Not usually my father, often his office assistant, mm-hmm. up someone. Right. Um, and he was a presence in the house as a result that he would not be had he, you know, left for an office before dawn and come home after dark. And that's what led to all my years of life work reporting. Hmm. is this idea that, wait, there are other ways to do it. There are other constructs. It We do not have to follow the one that was set by corporate America after the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We, we can redesign this. But essentially, I aimed to be my mother, and I ended up growing up to be my father.
1: Huh. And we only know what we know. So having your dad right nearby all the time was just normal for you, it right? Normal. It was just part of the tapestry of your upbringing.
0: It was normal. Um, my husband edited, he was one of my best and first editors on this latest book. And one of the things he pointed out, because this book took 10 years of I was going to
1: ask you, I can so, imagine that. Yes.
0: So there was some repetition because, you know, there were things that had been written years after other things. Um, and he pointed out that five times in the first draft, I wrote essentially the same sentence, which is you only have two choices in life. One is to parent the way you were parented, and the other is to parent the exact opposite.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, yes, my parents were, as all parents are, in credible role models in that yes. they were what I bounced all my decisions off mm. of because it's all you know it is you, you, the only close-up example you've seen in some families you get you get it twice you get it in two households but essentially the only thing you get to see intimately up close um, and 24 7
1: mm-hmm. is
0: your own parenting and then you carry that around with you for better or worse
1: you do for all of, for as, as we'll talk about in the story, um, the real life story, the better and for worse cuts through all of the families because, as you point out, this is a messy thing. This uh, living life, being a parent, doing your best, it's messy even on a good day. Um, wow. Okay. There's so, there's so much here. And the awareness of just the awareness of how we were parented and then making that informed decision, right? Like you parent the same way or you parent opposite, regardless, and maybe for some, somewhere in between over time, the goal is for it to be intentional from understanding your upbringing, understanding what you liked, understanding what you didn't like, and then trying to purposely parent in a way that um, aligns with your values and what you want for your own family.
0: And then if I might, there is one more element, which is the generational Mm -hmm. element, which I didn't focus on even in all the years of writing about parenting until I hit this book, which covers 60 years and, Mm and three generations. I didn't really focus on how context informs our parenting choices. I mean, we all know that the job of every generation is to rebel against the one before, because of course, each generation knows better than the one before. Yes.
1: Um,
0: But there's a reason we all choose the same names for our kids, and have the same views on on discipline, and right? And that these things change so that our parents always look a little wrong, even the ones we revere, mm-hmm. always look a little wrong and old-fashioned. And it's because each generation was formed not just by their parents, which I was very aware of, but by everything that happened around them. I mean, mm-hmm. we could talk for an entire show about the COVID generation, for right. instance, right. and and how that changed parenting and how that will change the children of that generation and the parents they become. But the children of the Great Depression, who I was mostly writing about, mm-hmm. and they were raised in a different time than their own parents who were you know raised to believe that anything was possible and and the future was full of new inventions that were going to save everything it was kind right. of the last completely optimistic moment in the history of the US and then the depression came along and their children right were different so there's the generational mm-hmm. piece in there in terms of how we
1: right choose what At,
0: kind of parents we're going to be
1: it's so it's so important in that context as you point out often gets lost we each get we each each generation becomes quote outdated, like you said. And I, I was talking with someone recently, um, a client perhaps, about that. Is you know remembering when you know I was young, felt my parents' way of thinking was maybe you know they're not as hip, they're not with it. And I find myself being that parent for my kids now, as they have mm-hmm. are growing up, have grown up, and point things out to me. And it's this wow, it's like this crossroads of of transitioning from being I don't know, like being in your own context to now seeing the context through your children's eyes. And even with all of our parenting decisions, as you point out, COVID has had a tremendous and will continue to have a tremendous impact. Um, Social media, all of these other things that we did not experience impacts our kids' lives even beyond the importance of our parenting decisions.
0: So there is a chapter in this book on 1918 and uh, 1918 was was a horrifying year. Um, it was a year of death in all directions so there was the pandemic of, of 1918 there was World War one but more people were killed by the pandemic than were killed by the war um, and I was in the middle of writing that chapter when 2020 hit. Mm. And I had done a draft, and then I then life happened, and I went and revised that chapter because suddenly I understood what my characters were going through. As it happened, none of them had direct loss during the pandemic. But just the idea that there was this threat out there and and they were not the sepia-colored people of archival footage. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I saw them as three-dimensional, multicolored human beings doing the best they can as the world mm-hmm. made it harder and harder. And I kept thinking, what was it like? Had never had this thought before. Had thought a lot about 1918, but never once thought, what was it like to be a parent mm-hmm. then
1: mm-hmm.
0: until I lived it myself and, and suddenly kind of in sharp relief saw, Oh, that's what shaped Mm -hmm. these folks. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd never used that lens before.
1: So many questions. I want to dive into this piece of artwork that you've created before though. I, I want to get us there by this last this last portion of your career as a parenting expert. (laughs) And, and I know just from reading, there's a lot of take home messages about parenting in this genealogy. What, what was your transition like as a parent, then being a parent expert journalist as you are also living it?
0: My, my children are highly amused that anyone ever considered me a parenting expert. Um, and, and I am not a parenting expert. Um, I happen to enjoy and maybe have a knack for taking, you know, ongoing debate and worry um, and addressing it, you know, talking to a lot of people about it and condensing what they think. There were so many moments um, in the life of raising my children where I would be in the middle of an, an imperfect um, interaction with my kids, and one of them would look at me and say, "Your readers would not approve." Um, so, yeah. yes, and they were right. You know, I would lose my temper, I would lose my mind. Um, you know, th- things were were not going according to anyone's textbook. It, it was an interesting dynamic. Um, I did have to stop eventually
1: because
0: mm-hmm. when your kids are really little, their stories are yours. Right. There's no question of, wait, this is too private because you have a two, three, four-year-old who can't read and doesn't know and would probably at least my children get a vague kick out of it. Um, if they understood that mom was telling stories to the whole world, um, as they got older, not so much a kick out of it. Mm, And we did have an arrangement because I did this for a good decade. Um, we did have an arrangement where I would start to ask permission. Can I tell that story? Um, I, Periodically would end up texting them during math class, which is not good parenting, uh, because <laughs> yeah. you know the, the, there was a deadline and I needed to know if if this column yeah. was okay with them. Mm-hmm. But so there was only one thing, and I honestly don't even remember what it is, and I probably wouldn't tell you anyway. But th- that one thing that one son said, I really wish you wouldn't do that because I edited myself also. Yeah, and when I realized that I couldn't write around this. I couldn't Mm-mm. edit myself and still be saying, telling substantive right. things. Yeah, um, It was time to hand it off to someone else. Mm-hmm. The, the unfortunate part of that is, is that parenting is lonely and you want someone to talk to about where you are in it. And you can do that if you're lucky, finding the cohort when your kids are very young,
1: right, right.
0: But when it becomes their privacy, yeah. My child right. is struggling in school. My child is struggling with with eating issues. My, you know, I I'm I'm worried about their friend cohort. You can't go to your friends for that right. in the same way because they know this kid in the real world, mm-hmm. and it's their privacy. It's their story. So it does trouble me a bit that. There's wonderful um, advice and resources in the good part of um, social media and the web where people are talking about their real lived experience, and then they kind of have to be quiet or feel they have to be quiet. And I was one of them. Yeah, I I stopped because it was no longer something I felt I could comfortably do.
1: I understand and uh, relate and it is it's a, it's just a, it's a it's a balance to use your own experience to want to help while also keeping the privacy um and as a in my life as a therapist you know we're taught you know uh, many have been taught in the past to really keep all of your stuff out and to be this you know back in the freudian this this blank slate And we've come a long way since then, and we understand power dynamic, differentials, and um, not being on a pedestal. And I found early on, as I became a parent, sharing selectively, as anonymous as I could, stories about my own experience as a parent um, and some of my kids' experiences to my clients. Over time, people would give me feedback that actually was the most helpful thing i heard you know even beyond some of the techniques and the strategies because they felt affirmed they did not feel alone to your point but again over time it becomes challenging to walk to walk that line um one one other thing i'll say I, i i you triggered a memory when you know the idea that you're a parenting expert and your kids um Finding that funny. Use that against yes, you. Yes. 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 Um, you know, as a psychologist, I get that every once in a while too. And in one particular case that I'll never forget, one of my kids, I said something. I was anxious about a situation that was going on and I had trouble filtering it. So I said something to one of my kids and that person responded, Dad, given what you do, I really can't believe you said that to me right now. And I just paused and it hit me right between the eyes. And this person was so correct. Right. It's just like the mirror looking back, it'd be like, oh, you're uh-huh. so right. But we are all, we are all human. Um, and then note to self and we move on. Okay. So, genealogy of a murder, everyone. The subtitle just captures one four generations, three families. One fateful night. And I'm going to ask you to set up the story. And before you do, I want to read one of your quotes that just stuck with me. That sets the tone. We owe thanks and blame to our ancestors and an an explanation and apology to our descendants. We are actors without a script, travelers without a map, gamblers who don't know the odds. We have less influence on who we think we are now than we believe and much more power on the future than we think.
0: Yeah. um, It was a profound writing experience. Um, And it really was all about how do we become who we are Mm -hmm. Um, and, and why? So the, the, elevator version of the book is it's about the um, murder of a police officer in Connecticut in 1960 and it's about four generations of three families whose lives collide that night with that murder so how did you know there were three young men who all grandsons of immigrants who came for the right reasons or the same reasons to to give their their progeny of Better Life, and how did one grandson of immigrants become the cop, one become his killer, and one become my stepfather,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who inadvertently set this shooting into motion. So it is both global and very personal. Um, and it, it, I thought, was going to take me about 18 months to write. And I... Ended up handing it in eight years late (laughs) Um, because I ended up going down all sorts of rabbit holes, many of them exactly the ones we're talking about. Because Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, I could write this book or one could write this book about anyone. How did you and I end up at this moment? On this screen, Mm -hmm. what were all the choices and events and coincidences, ones we knew about, ones we didn't, that ended up bringing us both here? Mm -hmm. There might not be a murder in it, so it might not have as much of a hook as a book, Mm -hmm. but- it's true of all of us, and and I don't profound pr- pretend this is the most profound statement anyone has ever made. I mean, I've seen sliding doors. I, I understand mm-hmm. the butterfly effect. We are endlessly fascinated
1: mm-hmm. with
0: this. How did I get here? If not for, but if not for the grace of what, mm-hmm. there go I. Right. Um, yeah. What made me. End up here, and someone else not. Um, and so I ended up just—I joke that this book is the history of the United States through three families mm-hmm. and a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the story of these three people, but it's the story of everyone. And yeah, it gave my publisher nightmares trying to to summarize it because. You know, as the salespeople say, there are no comps, Lisa. We we we, we don't know what to compare this to, mm-hmm. but it was mm-hmm. it was the, you know, culmination of a career. And to my surprise, having thought that okay, I no longer write about parenting, I I now write about history, um, and, and genealogy, I ended up writing in many ways a parenting book.
1: So as I was reading it and following these lives and these generations and just the way I learned, I loved revisiting and learning about history through real life people. There's just such a contextual, it it was so real. I mean, I was just fascinated by you did, all of this is, it's nonfiction. Everything is from a, a document a story, your research, an interview. And you were able to bring these stories to life as if they were happening in real time based on all of this archived material. And I just imagined a room full of stuff and the boards that are connecting this to this. And I mean,
0: I I almost I almost made a murder board just like to take its picture. Yeah. Right. I, yes. I became one of my my early reviewers, and the early reviews have made me cry with happiness. Um, but one of the early viewers discussed my obsession, mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, I prefer to call it a fascination. But you're the therapist. It probably is an obsession. I was both determined that it be accurate, right? Mm-hmm. Are there mistakes mm-hmm. in this book? You can't write this mm-hmm. many words and spend this much time without making them. I understand that. there. And plus, what is fact and truth is a good question when you're going back mm-hmm. um, 100 years. But I wanted to make it as factual as I could, because that to me is the, the awe Mm-hmm. of this, that mm-hmm. these people really did live, that you can't put this screen up between you and them and say, yeah, well, you know, they made that up. Mm-hmm. Um, this, These were real lives of real people. And part of it was a fun challenge for me. Let's put this jigsaw puzzle together with each of these little pieces until we have a real picture that Certainly for me, I felt like I was living with these folks after a while. I, they, they, I were no longer, yes. they were no longer just, you know, dead people. Um,
1: I imagine they'd be in your dreams. I, I'm,
0: gonna miss them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to miss them. I'm going to miss them. i spent every day with them and I am going to miss them. And there were times where there was, you know, I, I had three families that were completely separate and yet I would discover something that they all had in common and I had the profound feeling that they had just been sitting there patiently for 100 years waiting for me to figure this out. Mm. Um, and wasn't it nice that I finally came along and did so? <laughs> so so it was a writing exercise, but it was also a, an exploration of something that's fascinated me forever, as I think it's why I became a journalist. Mm. How did you become who you are? How did you get here? Where did your story start? And so, yes, it mm-hmm. took It took eight years to map how those three men ended up in that moment of their lives entangled um, forever. Really.
1: Did you first, remind me, did you first hear about that from your stepfather? That was the first time. Okay. So
0: yes, so my mother, he and my mother married late in <laughs> life. So this was not a man who raised me. Mm-hmm. By the time I met him, I was an adult. I had children of my own. Um, and he, they had been married a fairly brief time. And one HBO made a miniseries out of a previous book of mine, Show Me a Hero. Mm-hmm. We had just found out that that was being greenlit. And so Al, my stepfather, to be polite and a good family player um, in this new family of his, had just read the book. He had just read Show Me a Hero. And he, um, we were sitting at breakfast in my mother and stepfather's new house in Tucson, Arizona. And he looks at me and puts down his fork. And he looks at me and he says, your book reminds me of a story. Hmm. And to tell you why it reminded him is a spoiler, so I, I right. won't spoil, but yep. your book reminds me of a story. And he proceeds to tell me a story of his own life. And it is it is the main story of the book. Mm-hmm. A doctor who is stationed, my stepfather, who is stationed at the Stateville Penitentiary in Chicago, which you know was still the largest maximum security prison in the U.S. His job there is to run medical experiments on prisoners, which later were deemed right. to be unconscionable, but at the time made sense to everyone doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody goes to work every day and says, I'm going to do something terrible today. I mean, right. they, they truly felt they were doing good. Um, they were finding a cure for malaria and using um, the prisoners as subjects in this experiment. And he met one of the lab techs, a prisoner who was training to, um, for work he could do when he got out. And so the book is very much an exploration of when has someone changed? Can people change? When are people ready to be released? What is the responsibility mm-hmm. of a prison system to make them ready? Al decided this man was ready based on a lot of research and a lot of time and all good intentions. Mm-hmm. And they became friends of a sort. They were very alike. But for the fact that one was an armed robber and the other was my stepfather, the the nerdy doctor. Um, and so Al helped him in his appeal for parole. And then things went terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. He ended up holding up a tavern, shooting a police officer. None of that is a spoiler. It's all in the first chapter. Um, but he told me the essence of that story over breakfast. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know I have to write about this, don't you? And he kind of put down his fork and said, well, if you must, you must. And (laughs) that became this book. And after that, I went forward and backward, right? What was the effect of that? How did this come to happen? And then what were the ripple effects?
1: Mm -hmm. But it
0: all started with that one breakfast and that one nugget of a story.
1: And how one thing leads to another, because if he didn't read your book, he might have Mm -hmm. never said that to you. This reminds me of...
0: Right, and if he hadn't sat next to my mother at my niece's bat mitzvah shortly after my mother was widowed, and you know, and mm-hmm. he was as well, then you know, I never would have met the man, mm-hmm. and I I wouldn't know this whole story. Again, true of mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. moment in every life. But there's a wonderful um, Kierkegaard quote that says, "Life can only be understood backwards, mm. but it has to be lived forwards," <laughs> and. That, in a way, is a guiding principle for, for this entire book. We all look back on our lives and everything looks linear,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but we, can't, we don't see it. It's not linear while we're experiencing it. It seems mm-hmm. inevitable in retrospect. It seems mm-hmm. like a jumbled, impossible mess while we're making all of these micro decisions at mm-hmm. every moment. So that was the, the spirit or the feeling I, mm-hmm. I tried to give while writing.
1: And through the writing and the storytelling, I mean, the, the characters, the real life players um, that come to be the uh, Leopold and Loeb, the, the famous murder, which they I just
0: showed up. I didn't even middle. know about them.
1: And I was tracking them through the whole book and their outcomes. And I was fascinated by the thinking in the reformation. Um, and the rehabilitation, which we now call of the, the penitentiary system, and how these well-intentioned people were really trying to house and rehabilitate these men to get them back to society in such a humane way. That's just not how we think, how I think about it now, and how what it exists now, and the evolution and the challenges of trying to do it the right way. I was, I mean, I was. I was all in on that segment of the story, which goes yeah. through, throughout the book.
0: The penitentiary is a character mm-hmm. in the story. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. The prison system is a character in the story. And the attempts of a series of wardens to do the right thing... Mm-hmm. I argue that almost everyone is always trying to do the right thing or what they think is the right thing. I mean, it doesn't mean monsters don't exist, but they don't know they're monsters or they don't think of themselves as monsters for the most part. I mean, I defer to you in, mm-hmm. in the analysis and um, psychology of of human beings, mm-hmm. but all the people in this book, I am convinced, and I approached them with the belief that they were trying to do the right thing, and yet mm-hmm. there was a series of wardens at this prison that took completely opposite approaches, and there are parents that take completely yeah. opposite approaches, and there, you know, Al worked in in a an environment that was later judged to be evil, but right. he saw as a way to save hundreds of thousands of people from malaria and prisoners were lining up to volunteer how could this be coercion right he honestly believed that he was saving the world and allowing prisoners to contribute patriotically because most of these vaccines were needed for our armed forces um You know, it really is about this back and forth pendulum of what we understand as right Mm -hmm. um, versus wrong Mm -hmm. and how it played out in the lives of several families that, you know, had, had they, one of the, the, the eventual killer goes to a, the St. Charles school for boys at one point. um, And there's. Actually, it ended up in my end notes because I there was so much in this book that there were things that I had to cut and then I put them in the end notes because I was so taken by them. So I recommend anyone who reads this go to the end notes because they're the best part.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But in the end notes, there's something that says if Joe had entered the penitentiary 10 years – the, the St. Charles School for Boys 10 years earlier, he would have had a militaristic experience because that was what – the times mm-hmm. called for, and if he had entered ten years later, he would have had, you know, a a. Everyone lives in f- like families, and they're recreating family life, and the, everyone is is has their own psychological counseling sessions because that was what was in vogue at the time. Frankly, the field of sociology had just been invented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 10 years later. But he came at a time of absolute chaos. During the Depression, there was no money to take care of these boys. Nobody really had a theory so much as keep them from running away and hurting someone. And so that was his experience of the place that was supposed to deal with his growing juvenile delinquency. Mm -hmm. And so- Yes, Joe was who he was, but had he been who he was at a variety of different times, he would arguably have had a different final Joe. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are a product of all that stuff, not just the stuff we can see.
1: And how, with your multiple generations, you see how things are just set in motion so far in the past uh, to the person's life. And I was, well, let me ask you it this way. Were you s- surprised by the different crimes, the, 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 the criminals who committed the crimes and murder, the, depending on who we're talking about? I, I guess I was surprised. Let me say this way. I was surprised how few really knew why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, we always try to s- assign this, this reasoning and it seemed it honestly, many did not even know why they were doing what they were doing.
0: And um, Nathan Leopold is a famous example mm-hmm. of that. He was, um, it's an interesting generational question, Nathan Leopold, because if you ask anyone, I, I don't want to presume your age, but I have polled rooms mm-hmm. and I said, Nathan Leopold, sound familiar? Pretty much everyone 50 and up raises their hand. Mm-hmm. 30s and 40s, they they think they know, mm-hmm. um, but, but might be wrong. Mm-hmm. And younger, no idea. And then I say to them, the two college students who randomly committed murder in the 1920s beca- to prove they were too smart to get caught.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that people have heard of, that has become part of Sort of the general understanding of, of history mm-hmm. by people. Yeah, there were these two. Now, they were not too smart to get caught. They got caught pretty quickly, but right. that, and it became the first crime of the century. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they were huge um, for a period of time. And um, Nathan Leibold, um, his friend Richard Loeb, died fairly early in their 99 years to life sentence. Nathan. Um, said all along, you know, people kept asking him why. And his only answer, and he said it convincingly, was, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't, I cannot mm-hmm. access the person who did that. Mm-hmm. Not his words, that's more current language, but I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I have correspondence from my shooter to my stepfather, to, you know, various people who he let down with, the final act of shooting this police officer saying the same thing. I don't know. All I can tell you is mm-hmm. I thought that I was going to make good. Yeah, I thought right. that I had changed my life. I don't know why I didn't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I do. Yeah, I know. Um, not entirely, but I know things he didn't know about his own life. Mm-hmm. And in looking backwards, a la Kierkegaard, there's a direct line between his father's own upbringing, his father's dreams denied, how hard this man was on his children as a result. Um, and probably, you know, one clip I found, the father was a motorcycle Um, star. You didn't know there were motorcycle racing stars in 1908. Neither did I, but it was the biggest sport in America for like 12 minutes. (laughs) And this father was one of the stars. And I found one little clip of a crash that the father had. Where you could hear his head hit the concrete pavement from the top of the stands. And I put this, I sent this clip to a number of, of forensic pathologists who said, well, yeah, he had a TBI. Right. And yeah, it changed right. his personality. And was this the only outcome for Joe as a result of that? No. But it does looking backward make it look
1: mm-hmm.
0: inevitable. And linear in a way that, no, Joe didn't know, but
1: maybe
0: my readers
1: will. Right. What did, did this eight year plus adventure change the way you see parents, yourself and others, you know, like how, how does it, how did this experience change you?
0: I've always known we were all doing the best we could. Um, I've always believed that. Again, there are bad parents. There are people who shouldn't be parents. um, There are people who do bad things. But I think, in essence, we are all doing the best we can with what we have. Um, I am more certain of that Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. I have great sympathy for the people I wrote about, all of them, Mm -hmm. um, which – I guess you have to in order to write about them and live with them this long, um, mm-hmm. but that tends to be my default. I want to find out what it's like to be them, not stand out here and condemn them. Um, my, I didn't want to write this book where the only takeaway was, yeah, Shooter was doomed from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Parents were crappy, he was doomed, why did we even bother? Mm-hmm to try to help him. Um, instead, the takeaway I landed on was another character entirely, um, but a, a really interesting case study in someone who started out the same way as, as my shooter did with, with the same dysfunctional family father, who was a drunk and, and beat everyone in the house. Um, same was on the same trajectory. Was a juvenile delinquent, and he pulled himself out. Mm-hmm. And he is now a philosophy professor in California, a ninety-something philosophy professor in mm-hmm. California.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: why? Why could he pull himself out? And his answer yes. after taking psychology courses yeah. was one person who stepped in and cared.
1: Yes. And yes. yeah.
0: And it's, you know, the story of who that person is is complicated and in the book, but profound, one person. And I look back and I realize that everybody who turned out okay had one person who stepped in and cared. And that has been my takeaway, is that maybe you will be that person.
1: I love that. And I actually pulled out the quote (laughs) that you just said. I mean, it's because it speaks to, Resiliency research for as long as there has been resiliency research always goes back to the difference between people and the sliding doors of life is one person who believes in you. And again, just to tease people a little bit, because you have to read this book, the quote, why didn't I turn out differently than DeSalvo? And then he thought, and he said, thinking back of his teacher professor, one person who believes in you as a child. Mm-hmm. And it's just for everyone listening, it's like whether you're a parent, whether you're an auntie or an uncle or a coach or a teacher or a neighbor, a volunteer, like it literally comes down to one person who sees you and believes in you and your potential and your goodness.
0: And yeah, eight, eight years, and I rediscovered that truth.
1: hmm Oh, so much more, so much more. I was sad when I, I was overwhelmed when I started to read it because of all the names and all the tracking, everything, just the way I process. And I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I take, no, then you get into it. But I want to say, then I was, then I was fully in it with all of them. And then I was sad when I was finished, right? You know, you've read an amazing book when you're, first of all, I'm talking to my wife about the characters and the, you know, the collision. And she's like, wait, so was that, you know, I'm trying to like walk her through the genealogy. But, by the end you it's these 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 people are in one psyche, and it's hard to say goodbye
0: well, I may cry at that description because that's how I feel about it, and that's what I was trying to to provide is an experience of living mm-hmm. these lives mm-hmm. from years ago that could have been our own ancestors and could inform how we ended up where we are doing what we do. Um, or at least a little taste of Mm -hmm. what might be out there for us to discover about ourselves. I now know more about my stepfather's family than I do about my own. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And I need to correct that Yeah, (laughs) for myself. I want to correct that.
1: Uh, Eight more years. Just eight more years. (laughs) Okay, Lisa, we have to get to the parent footprint moment question. Mm -hmm. So here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love.
0: I remember... I don't remember what the specific was. I wish I did, but I was doing a thing that my parents did because that is how you be a parent giving a dollar an a for, for, you know, or giving it, it was there a reward based system. And one of my kids looked at me and says, but that doesn't work for my head,
1: Hmm.
0: and I sat back and realized that I started these things before I knew my children, right? I started to put these systems into place, the chore charts or whatever it was, before I knew my particular children, and this didn't work for these particular children. And that it wasn't, parenting wasn't about, I'm going to set these parameters, and I'm going to figure out, you know, how to get you from point A to point B, again, the way I was. It's more, I am going to learn who you are, Mm -hmm. and I am going to interact with you where you come from. Um and it was a big change was i perfect at it absolutely not um and my children might have a lot to say about it although i do have two adults who are very different from each other mm-hmm. which was partly the lesson i was learning there yeah and who are seem to be happy productive you know members of, of the universe. So yes, maybe in spite of me, but I did learn to let go of what worked for me Mm -hmm. when my parents did it for me and start to learn who they were, which I hadn't really been focusing on until beautiful.
1: And that takes a lot of courage to throw those books away, throw that advice away and to trust ourselves on the journey. Um, Thank you for sharing that. You are reminding me of a, a client who had told me not that long ago, an adult, who said um, she always was a little perplexed about how differently her parents raised she and her brother. And when she asked her mom as an adult, her mom said something like, well, it's simple. You're a lion and your brother's a cat. Lions have to be trained treated differently than cats so we adjusted how we raised you guys based on what we thought was best for you and for her it was like oh wow like she was you know looking at through her own filter about that's not fair and you you know Mm -hmm. and it's like also this idea of how can we have i think shared family values that are consistent in the family but we individualize for each child's needs based on who they are and the awareness that we have to do things differently
0: and then at some point you have to let it go, yeah. Which is a, yeah. a late lesson in parenting yes. that there is a point where they are adults, and and your job is to be a safe space should they want to come back periodically, but mostly to say, you know, I I gave you as much as I could, and now you go off and, and yes, be you with it
1: yes which
0: is a whole other chapter.
1: That's a whole other chapter. Lisa, congratulations on this beautiful piece of work. I'm holding it up, everyone. You may or may not be able to see it. Um, Genealogy of a murder, four generations, three families, one fateful night, and a decade of Lisa's life. Into this, please tell everyone where they will be able to find it.
0: Uh, Any, anywhere books are sold. Um, And, and, you know, I really hope it has a, a, it is embraced out in the world because I, I think there's a lot in it and, and these families gave me a lot of themselves Mm -hmm. in order to tell their stories. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping it has a happy journey.
1: It will. There is something for everyone, for you murderinos, that's clearly in there for the people who, um, you history buffs, man, that's all about history. The idea of nature and nurture. Um, if you like wars, if you like the depression, I mean, there's everything is in here. Um, guns, motorcycles, malaria. Um, it's just, it's history. It's our history. Um, and the history of people that you've brought to life and shall be remembered. Even those who you were not remembered, you brought them to life. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Get this book, everyone. Share this episode with everyone you know. Um, So this, gosh, it's going to stay with me. You know what I'm going to ask you to do? We appreciate your five-star reviews. We so appreciate you being part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become. And ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by Pro Tunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.